turn to that this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, just wave to them, get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hand this evening. And uh, then, of course, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. Sunday night, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, currently in the book of Psalms, where we pick things up in Psalm 60. And Psalm 60 is a psalm for times of defeat. And you notice the description that's given there uh, prior to verse 1 of the psalm, the context of it. It is a psalm, a victim of David for teaching. And so teaching occurs in a lot of different ways. It can occur uh, through music, through a, a, a a, a, a hymn or a sacred song or a psalm. So the purpose is to teach us something. And the context of what it came out of is when David fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So verse 1, O God, why have you cast us off? You have broken us down. You have been displeased. So something has happened that has displeased God, and David knows it. Oh, restore us again. You've made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches, for it is shaking. For you have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it might be displayed because of the truth, Selah, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand, and hear me. So what has happened here, we know from the historical books of the Old Testament, that is relatively early in David's reign, uh, he, they were attacked by uh, Syria. They, he took a military force up against Syria in the uh, northeast of Israel while engaged in battle with the uh, Syrians. The Edomites, who were located in the south southeast of Israel, looked at that as a moment of vulnerability to attack David, to attack Judah. So they invaded Judah from the south. Uh, then what David did is he dispatched a military force from the current front that they had opened up to return to confront the Edomites and Joab and the children of Israel uh, engaged in battle with the Edomites and uh, ended up uh, crushing them mightily in a, in a military defeat of the Edomites. Somewhere in, uh, in all of this, there is, uh, when in this whole uh, psalm gets written, probably written between the time that uh, they engaged the Syrians and then they suffered this defeat down by the invasion of the Edomites. So somewhere between the hearing of that invasion of the Edomites and the defeat of the Edomites, uh, David is confused at why God would allow this to happen, why the children of Israel would be defeated in battle uh, in, in this way. And so he's confused about the cause of the defeat, and so this is what the psalm uh, comes out of. Every Christian, uh, we should never as Christians ever get accustomed to defeat in our life. There's no reason for it. I'm talking about spiritually, 
morally, these kind of ways. Sometimes it's very easy for us as Christians to just say, all right, that big sin or these three big sins or my big fat mouth or my Irish temper or whatever it might be, and we just look and say, well, I'm defeated in this area of my Christian life continually. I just accept that defeat as a part of my Christian life, and I'm willing to be accepting of that. And we should never do that, whatever that might be. There is, there is never a reason for us to be defeated by sin or by the devil in our Christian lives. And when we suffer a defeat, we suffer a setback, the thing that we need to do is to step back and say, This did not need to happen. In the light of God's promises in my life, in the light of God's provision for me, spiritually as a Christian, this didn't need to happen. It shouldn't have happened. And then doing what the psalmist does here, and that is to turn to God and say, God, show me why this happened, because I want to correct whatever it is that caused this defeat because we do not want to get used to defeat in our lives as God's people and as Christians. And we know from what David is talking about here in verse 1, he talks about God being displeased. Uh, We'll see in just a moment in verse 6 where he says, God has spoken in His holiness. Somehow there was something that occurred within the children of Israel. And I don't think that, obviously, they're not engaged in idolatry or something. David, a godly king, even at the beginning of his reign and all. But there was something of some kind of a sin that marked their life, and they experienced a setback. Maybe maybe some arrogance, maybe some pride, maybe some self-confidence. But there was something that God was displeased with and allowed them to suffer a defeat so that David would pull back and say, all right, what went wrong here? I don't know what it is. And sometimes we don't. All right, Lord, I don't know what that was all about. All I know is I didn't do well in that situation. I need you to walk me through that and tell me why it turned out the way that it turned out and how I can do that different the next time. And he'll be faithful to do that. So there was some kind of a sin. And sometimes a setback, and this is why we must never get uh, used to uh, spiritual defeats or setbacks. Sometimes God will allow us to experience a defeat in order to get our attention related to some sin, uh, something that displeases Him in our life that we have grown accustomed to. And again, we can grow very accustomed. Say, well, you know, I'm not living the perfectly victorious Christian life, and uh, but it's okay with me. It'll get me to heaven, and this is all I really want. And we just settle into this long... We just figure, okay, um, I'm going to slip in right here, and God's going to leave me alone, and that's going to be okay with Him. And it isn't okay with Him. So He allows us to suffer some kind of a defeat that really gets our attention, and we realize, okay, that isn't a Christianity that's acceptable to Him. He's allowed me defeated here because this sin or this issue is a big deal to Him. I need to make it a big deal to me, and I need to take care of it. What we have to realize is that in our service to the Lord or in our Christian witness, uh, when we go out into battle spiritually in, in our ministries, 
God isn't just glorified in the victory. So I can't come to God and say, God, you have called me to do this thing. I'm going to do this thing. And it doesn't matter how closely I'm walking with you or not walking with you. As long as you give me a victory in this and people know that I am mostly about you, you'll receive enough glory. That, is, that, that isn't a big enough understanding of the picture. Because God receives glory in a situation, not just by giving us a victory in a specific situation, but when we enter into that battle based upon the truth. Truth is our banner, as he speaks about there in in verse 4. A banner is something that they would carry out, leading out into battle. You would go into battle... uh, under some kind of a banner, some kind of, a, of an emblem. We go out into battle under the emblem of truth. And so God looks, and what they realized here is they're going off to battle just saying, God, all right, all you need to do to get glory here is just have us win the battle. God says, no, it's bigger than that. I can win a battle any time, but you're going out into battle in my name claiming to represent my word and what it means to be a child of God. And so if you don't go out that way, then I'm going to allow you to suffer defeat. So it's important for us to live an obedient Christian life as we're serving the Lord. So they experience this defeat. Sometimes God will allow us to experience a defeat because to make us realize that the sin that we would just look o- overlook and think nothing of, he, he raises the volume and says, no, we're not going to do that. That doesn't work for what I have planned for your life. But the big lesson is for us to realize tonight in this room, we do not, if you are in this place, we do not settle for a Christian life that is marked and characterized by defeat. There is something wrong with that because of what Christ has purchased for us, all that we have, all that we are in Christ, our lives are to be marked by victory, by obedience, by advancement. It doesn't mean that we won't uh, take a setback every once in a while because we're growing. None of us are perfect, but our lives shouldn't be characterized by defeat. And so he says, God has spoken in his holiness. And so here he is. He's uh, sought the Lord related to his uh, this defeat, and then now the cure to all of this is a return to God's holiness. And then having done that now, God begins to speak to them, and we see that the psalmist David is, uh, uh, begins to possess a confidence now concerning the future that is a confidence that only a child of God who's walking obedient to the Lord has. When I, if I'm living a life of disobedience to the Lord and then this happens and that happens and this, there's no confidence in my life. I'd go to pray and ask God for something. Why would I ask God for something if I'm not even already being obedient to what He's already told me to do? I mean, I just have no confidence He's going to answer that prayer unless I, you know, think I caught Him on a... Uh, you know, like a super day or something, and he's being extra gracious or something like that. So we lose confidence in God's blessing. We lose a confidence in today, in the future, in what God is going to do, what God is going to be in my life when we're, we're not walking in obedience. When we confess our sin, we recognize why a defeat has occurred, we repent of that sin, then all of a sudden that confidence concerning the future returns back to our lives. I will rejoice, the Lord said now, concerning Israel's uh, enemies. 
I will rejoice and divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Ephraim was a tribe in the northern section of Israel, in the center of Israel, and so God refers to them as a helmet. It was kind of a, um, a uh, you know, like a rock in the middle of the land, you know, as a security for military defense and, and that kind of thing. So he's, re- he's saying, uh, now in your repentance, you're returning to your full strength in standing against your enemies. Judah is my lawgiver because David was of the tribe of Judah and he was the king. Moab is my washpot. That's not a good thing. When you would defeat an enemy uh, or when a king would defeat another uh, king or enemy, then the basin that would be brought to him, he would wash his feet in that basin. And so God is saying, Moab is my wash pot. Moab was an enemy to the children of Israel, and it's a way of saying that, the, that Moab will become a servant to the children of Israel. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. So it's the same poetic imagery of a foot washing following a battle. So a king would come in, he's defeated the enemy, his feet would be washed in the wash pot, and then he would take his sandal and throw it to another servant that not only his feet would be washed, but his sandals would be washed as well. So he speaks of Edom now as becoming a servant to the children of Israel. Uh, Philistia, uh, Philistia shall in tri- uh, shout in triumph because of me. They'll hear the, the uh, shouts of, of, uh, of triumph and the, of the victories of the children of Israel. And then David's response to God's promise here of victory given their repentance is, uh, is prayer. Uh, to the Lord in uh, just expressing his faith and his confidence in the Lord. Who will bring to me the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off, and you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. And it is. If God the Bible says God is for us, so who can be against us? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if I'm in the doghouse and I don't have the help of God, I say, I don't need the help of God here. I've got all of these friends with all of this money or all this power or all this whatever. Well, you're going to learn a quick lesson that none of that means anything because the help of man is useless for the child of God when God is sitting on the sideline because of our willful disobedience. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is He who shall tread down our enemies. And so this wonderful recognition of of the fact that defeat should be a foreign thing to us. If it does occur, we seek God out for the reason why, rectify that so that we can have a confidence concerning the future. I think about Balaam, the prophet Balaam in the Old Testament in this vein, where you remember the king of Moab by the name of Uh, Balak had sent for Balaam to come and to curse the children of Israel as they were making their way from the exodus out of Egypt to the promised land. And there's a lot of activity that got Balaam finally to looking at the children of Israel 
and then paid by Balak to pronounce a curse upon the children of Israel. Four times he tried to curse the children of Israel. Every time he opened up his mouth to prophesy, a blessing came out. Finally, Balak, he starts clapping his hands like this to stop him and all. If you can't say anything bad about God's people, don't say anything at all. He's infuriated. I paid all this money for you to curse him, and every time you open your mouth, you bless him. He says, I can't help it. They're blessed. They're blessed by their God. And then he reveals to Balak a secret about God's people. It's kind of an open secret. He said, you'll never defeat these people from without. It will never happen. Their God is too strong. Their God is too great. His promises are too great toward them. You will never defeat them the way you're trying to defeat them. But there is a way that you can defeat them. Their God is a jealous God. And their God is unwilling to share them with false gods and with idolatry. So if you can introduce idolatry into the midst of the children of Israel, then you will do what cannot otherwise be done. You cannot defeat these people from without. The only way you can defeat them is to get them to bring defeat upon themselves through idolatry or bringing sin into their lives. And here's how you do it. Go to the... Take your Moabitess women and bring them into the camp of the children of Israel Have them make themselves available sexually to the men of the children of Israel. And then as they're beginning to engage in all of this, have the women, Moabitess women, bring out their idols and their gods and engage in the worship of them and the whole frenzy of of the event and everything. And he said, they will bring God's judgment on them themselves in a way that you never can. And the fact of the matter is that's exactly what Balak did and brought a great defeat upon the children of Israel, and it is a great lesson for our lives. We can never, ever be defeated from without. It need not happen. The only way we can be defeated is if we bring it on ourselves through disobedience to God's Word or through idolatry in our lives. It's a valuable, valuable lesson. Psalm 61 is a psalm that speaks about uh, and is a psalm for when our hearts are overwhelmed. So in Psalm 61, he writes, David writes, Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. This is one of the favorite psalms of, of God's people all through the ages. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you've been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows, and you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. And you will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations, and he shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. And so I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. And so Psalm 61, the psalmist describes uh, his condition in verse 2. He is overwhelmed, and specifically he says his heart is overwhelmed. Now, to be overwhelmed in life 
is to be more than stretched or more than, you know, heavily taxed. It is it occurs in our lives when the circumstances of life become so great that they not only overwhelm my ability to physically solve the circumstances, but they overwhelm even my ability to think about them and my ability to process them toward a solution. And the whole the idea of the word overwhelmed is like if you've ever seen some kind of a movie where someone is thrown overboard on a ship and just wave after wave after wave after wave is coming on top of them. They lose sight of some the person for seconds at a time, and then they reappear and they reappear, and then sometimes there's no ability to rescue them. That's the idea of just the circumstances of life are so overwhelming that they look like they're going to sink me and they're going to destroy me. Now, the interesting thing about Psalm 61 is that this isn't just any kind of a man that is finds himself in a place of being overwhelmed, his heart being overwhelmed by life. The psalmist is none other than King David. That's a strong man. David was a man's man. He was a lover of God, had a soft heart toward God. I wouldn't want to meet him on a, on a, a field of battle. I wouldn't want to meet him on a football field. Think about Goliath. Think about the battles that he went into one after another, after another, after another, where he comes back and he brings, what, a thousand foreskins of the Philistines and in a battle? He goes into this thing, and it's not like they're shooting, you know, the missiles from uh, 20 miles away. This is hand-to-hand combat where you put the sword into another human body and you smell their blood as it comes out of their body and here's this fight for righteousness and enemies trying to destroy God's people. He goes out there over and over and over again and is victorious in battle. He's a tough guy. He knows what it is to go from rags to riches in life. He's anointed. He's called by God. He possesses wealth virtually without limit. He has power. He's popular. He's got influence. And yet there's something that happens in his life here that leaves him completely overwhelmed by the circumstance. And he just looks at that and says, that thing, that combination of things has hit me and I'm powerless in the face of it. And I don't care who we are as Christians. We're going to face that as a child of God. You say, I've never faced that. God bless you. Remember Psalm 61 because it'll come. Circumstance where a person hits something and it completely outstrips our natural resources. And knowing something of, I mean, we could take pot shots at what circumstance in David's life uh, produce this being overwhelmed, and we could probably guess two or three and narrow it down that way. But it's interesting to me that the psalmist does not identify for us, the Holy Spirit doesn't identify for us, the circumstance in this psalm that this psalmist came out of. Because if he did, we would look and say, ah, if we're overwhelmed in the specific of this situation, then God will be this. And God doesn't want us to narrow it down like that. He wants this psalm to be an encouragement and instruction to us as Christians for any circumstance we find ourselves in that leaves us 
overwhelmed and to be able to apply that to, uh, to the situation that we're in. And we notice the psalmist's response to this overwhelming season in his life. And the point of the psalm isn't David got overwhelmed, you get overwhelmed, all of God's children get overwhelmed, and so don't we all feel better now about that? You know, misery loves company. So aren't you happy David was as overwhelmed as you were? That's not the point of the psalm. I'd take it if that was the point, but that's not the point of the psalm. The, what the point of the psalm is that David, by the Spirit of God, then declares to us what, what it is that he turned his overwhelmed heart to during this time in order to survive that time victoriously and move forward in what God had called him to do. And I think that Psalm 61 is so valuable. Sometimes you get in a trial that is so big and it's so overwhelming, you don't trust your decision-making. You don't trust that you're seeing it clearly enough to make a decision. And you just want to say, would somebody tell me, would somebody just give me several very good principles or pieces of instruction to live by and to mark my life while I navigate this thing that I'm in the middle of right now. And that's precisely what David does in this psalm. And I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 1, the first thing that David did is he cried out to the Lord in prayer. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. And he just went to God and he laid the whole thing out to God in prayer. He said, that's an obvious thing. I mean, we're a room full of Christians by and large. It's not the first thing sometimes that we do. Get on the phone and call so-and-so and call this and get that and head over to the bookstore and get three self-help books and all of that and do everything that we possibly can before we turn to prayer. And so one of the most important things to do is just begin to pray because as I pray, I realize, okay, I'm not alone in this circumstance. My resources that I'm facing with this circumstance are not my resources alone. God is in this with me, and I am in this situation with his resources. And that keeps our head above uh, the water. Every single person in this room will turn to someone or turn to something or somewhere when we hit that overwhelmed situation in life. It's not a matter of if we'll do that, but where are we going to turn? And David immediately turned to God and, and because only God was greater than all of the circumstances that were overwhelming him. And then you notice in verse 2, he asked God to lead him to the rock that is higher than him. This is a king that's saying this. And so here is David, this great man, and he realized that even he needed a rock that was higher than him in life, something that's solid, something that's sure. Wouldn't it be terrible to be a king or some great ruler in the world and, and then know that you're as frail and fragile as any other human being and to realize people are looking at you to be the rock and you, re- and you think to yourself, I'm no rock. I need a rock. And so here's David, you know. I mean, he's got all the power and all the everything and all of this and everything's going great. And then times like that, you can think, you know, I'm kind of a rock. And then you hit a circumstance where you realize, all right, the the rock needs a rock. 
I need something that's higher than me, sure than me, in what God has called me to do. And, of course, God is that rock. And then he declared in verse 3, the Lord to be his shelter. In other words, for the Lord to provide him with safety and keep him safe. And God did that. And in verse 3, we're told, too, that he declared God to be a strong tower from the enemy. A strong tower is is a great stone fortress. That's how he saw uh, God as. In other words, he trusts God to defend and protect him against his enemies during this time of uh, extreme vulnerability. When you're overwhelmed, man, that is a place where if people want to take you out, that's the time to take you out. You ever have that deal where it's just like the proverbial straw that breaks the camel back and you just say, one more straw and I'm done. And, and you know you're that vulnerable in the situation. And then at a time like that, we cry out to the Lord and we say to the Lord, I need you to be a strong tower from the enemy. I need you to protect me extra special during this period of vulnerability. And God did that for David, and he'll do that for us as well. Notice he declares, too, in verse 3, he says, For you have been, he goes on and says, You have been a shelter for me. But I just want to look at that. For you have been. That tells me that David stopped and he began to think about what God had all, always been to him. And this is so important to maintaining perspective. God never changes, the Bible says. It's called the immutability of God. He cannot change. And so he's always been faithful to us in every circumstance. We're just in a new circumstance. And so we need to look back on our testimony, look back on our history, and realize as bad as this looks, I've never been in a trial or a difficulty that's been as big as this. But don't we feel that way about every time we hit a big... Oh, I'm glad I got rid of that. I got that over. I graduated from high school in spiritual thing. I graduated, got my degree here, 12th grade. Now I just to get to coast all the way until I go into heaven. God says, you're stopping in the 12th grade? You're not stopping in the 12th grade. You thought that was the greatest trial you'd ever face in your life. Then you go to junior college. Then you go to college, and then you go to graduate school, and then you go to the school of hard knocks after that where you really learn things. And so there, we think that every time we hit something, and that's going to be the biggest thing, and then a bigger thing is coming, and that's just the way that it is because of the character that it builds in our life, the depth of relationship with God that it develops in our life, the faith that it develops in our life toward God. So that's always going to be happening. So here is this place where we hit this a difficult place that we're in, and to stop and to remember what God has always been to me, He will always be to me in this situation. So overwhelming times are times where, where we need to spend time in reflection and remembering. And then in verse 4, David declared that he'll be, he will abide in the Lord's tabernacle forever. And the tabernacle was, of course, the tent of meeting uh, for the children of Israel, contained the Ark of the Covenant. And so the tabernacle was basically where they had church services under the Old Covenant. And so David looked and he said concerning this overwhelming circumstance that he was in, he said, I'm going to use this as a time to draw even closer to God. Some people move away from God at a time like that. It's always a mistake. 
always a mistake. This was a time where David looked and said, this is difficult, this is overwhelming. I choose to make this an opportunity to draw even closer to God. And then in verse 4, he looked to God to shelter him with his wings. It isn't good that God has wings. It's talking about a mother hen that allows the chicks to come under her wings and, and takes care of her vulnerable chicks. And so David looked at it and, and he realized, I need to be overshadowed by someone who is greater than me. And so, Lord, I protect a lot of people. I encourage a lot of people. But, Lord, I need protection and I need encouragement now as well. And the Lord understands that. And, and he'll give that to us as he did to David. I notice also in verse 5 and in verse 8 that in the middle of all of this, David made vows to God. So rather than backsliding from God, the difficulty of the circumstance, he made vows to the Lord, makes a fresh commitment uh, to the Lord, to following the Lord, following him faithfully through the difficulty of the trial, and then he kept those vows. And I notice in verse 5 as well that he set his mind upon his heritage in the Lord. And our heritage in the Lord refers to the things that are ours as Christians that are given to us by God. And because they're given to us by God, they're beyond the reach of the circumstances of our life. These are the things, these are the blessings in our life that never change whatever our circumstances are. And so he was determined to look and say, as bad as this thing is right now, I am still unbelievably rich because of the blessings that are part of my life because of God that can never be touched by man or by another circumstance. And if you ever want to read a great way to prime the pump to think about those things related to our lives, Ephesians chapter 1 is a great place to do that, where it describes all of these things that, uh, that we have in Christ Jesus, that we are in Christ Jesus. All of these things are ours because of our faith in Christ. None of them can change on the basis of what anybody else does to us or anything that we do. And, and so he sets his mind uh, upon his heritage in the Lord, and that's a good thing to do as well. And then I like in verse 6 the fact that he speaks confidently of the future. In other words, God had made him a king. God would keep him as king over Israel. If this was written at a time of Absalom's rebellion against uh, David, then there was this recognition on David's part that that rebellion would be uh, unsuccessful. And so David was just simply declaring that one day this difficult season is going to pass. May I speak into your life if you are in one of those seasons right now. It will pass. You will not be there forever. It will pass. It will come for an end. You'll regroup, and then something else will happen. I'm sorry. It's just in me. I don't want to set you up for false hope. But then God will be faithful as he always has. But it will pass. You'll get through. You'll, you'll survive it and more than uh, survive that. And so God was, David was just declaring uh, to God that he knew that one day this will, all of this will come to an end. I will outlive it. 
And so David did. And then in verse 7, he sets his mind on eternity and, uh, and, he, and he just meditating upon the fact that this season in his life didn't change his eternity with God. No matter what's happening in my life, I can always, I always have a reason to praise the Lord because it never affects my salvation. I'm on my way to heaven. God, this is miserable. But I'm going to be in heaven someday. <laughs> I'm saved. I know you. One day I'm going to see you face to face. Again, the things that can never be taken away from us by the circumstances of, of life. And then in verse 7 as well, he's confident that God's mercy and truth is going to preserve him. David just declaring, I know God will be merciful to me. I know that his truth is going to have the final say in all of this. I rest in that fact. And so they did. And so they will in our lives as well. And he closes the psalm in verse 8 with his heart just filled with praise. And so I sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. And so he promised to keep his vows once the trial uh, was over. So he didn't want to just simply be one of those people that says, God, if you get me out of this, then I will do this. And then God gets them out of this and they don't do that. David said, I'm not going to do that to you. Whatever I promise to you, I'm going to keep that promise. But we see the psalm, it begins, the psalm begins literally with a cry for survival. It ends in confident praise. Why is that important? Because when we hit these kind of circumstances, as we just look at David's instruction to us, When we find ourselves in that kind of a circumstance, it's how to keep us from being our heart being overwhelmed and then instead delivering us into a proper perspective about what's happening here and praise and worship and adoration and faith is returned to our life. So it isn't just like here's a bunch of points from Psalm 61. Psalm 61 can save your life someday or save you from going ten times deeper in a trial or three times deeper in a trial than you need to. Just by looking at this saying, all right, I'm going to go through these things and make sure that these are characterizing my Christian life as well in this circumstance. And then there is the return of praise. It keeps us from that, uh, moving our heart from the place of, of being overwhelmed. So just a beautiful psalm for when our hearts are overwhelmed, just priceless practical steps for, for navigating a season like that. Psalm 62 is a psalm about uh, silently waiting or trusting upon God for deliverance while we're being unjustly attacked by uh, uh, our enemies or by those who claim to be our friends and then we find out they weren't our friends. And so it's how to wait silently for the Lord while we're being attacked. Truly, my soul waits for God. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. I want you to notice that. I shall not be greatly moved. He begins the psalm. All right, I'm in the middle of this. This thing is a mess. And God, I'm going to make a great statement of faith. Because you're my God, I shall not be greatly moved. And we're going to see a little bit later in the psalm, at the end of verse 6, I shall not be moved. 
So he begins with a little bit of faith, kind of an inferior faith. But as he's talking to God, as he's singing to God, as he's praising God, as he's praying to God, his faith is going to grow. That's why we see over and over in the Psalms, we see so many Psalms beginning with a psalmist in despair. But in that despair, he begins a conversation with God. And by virtue of the conversation with God, perspective begins to return back to his life. And then the psalm ends in praise and worship and confidence and in faith. And that's just how, uh, how it works. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? He speaks to his uh, attackers. You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high Position. And so I do think that this psalm, it's helpful to understand this psalm again from that incident. A lot of psalms came out of that period in David's life where his son Absalom uh, led the revolt against him to try and take over the kingdom and also to kill, uh, kill David. And uh, Absalom's plan against his father was a very, very clever plan. And he, he spent years laying this trap to overthrow his father. So we're told in, in the historical books related to this, David allows Absalom back into the city of Jerusalem. Absalom repays the grace of his father by then every morning going down to the gates of the city with 50 horses and a great uh, big show of force. And he would go there and he would bless the people and he would mingle with the people and he would say, Oh, if only I were king, I'd be down here to talk with you. Where's my father? When's the last time you saw King David down here talking with you in the morning? And look, here I am. And the people never even realized. It might be because being a king's uh, is a little more involved and so involved that you don't have mornings to go down and spend at the gate. But when somebody's working something like that, sometimes the audience falls prey to what they don't really understand about the situation. So he's undermining David in the minds of the people, all of his entourage, all of his thing, the horses and the chariot and the whole deal, all of that were the markings of a king. And he's basically conditioning their mind with the idea, getting them used to the idea that he is one day going to be the king uh, of, of Israel. And his plan is so clever and it's so well thought out that it really took uh, a very supernatural involvement of God uh, in order to defeat it. And as a result of this uh, plan of Absalom, David, of course, he flees with his 600 men and his wives across the Kidron Valley into the Judean uh, wilderness. And this whole season in David's life, of course, it broke his heart. And uh, David, uh, that rebellion against him would fail. It did ultimately fail. David did become the king of Israel once again. But Psalm 62 gives us a glimpse into the heart of David during this very, very painful chapter in his life. And it appears that David writes this uh, not as a reflection, you know, years after the event, but while still in the midst of the trial and uh, in the middle of uh, the difficult circumstance. And so the context of all of it, the theme of all of it is, is attacked. How long, verse 3, will you attack uh, a man? So he's being viciously attacked by people, we're told in the psalm, 
and uh, he's innocent of any wrongdoing, but they're attacking him just the same. He's attacked just simply for being faithful to God's call upon his life. I mean, David, I have no doubt sometimes in the difficulty of what David was in the middle of that he might have looked over at Greece and said, I'll just get a nice one of those nice little white houses, you know, on one of those Greek islands and look out on that blue sea every day and eat fish and and uh, have a Pepsi once in a while and uh, just live out the day. It's a lot easier than being king. He was a king and he was faithful to being a king because God had called him to be a king. I don't care who you look at in the body of Christ, whatever position they have, however prominent their position might be. You look at maybe a Billy Graham or Franklin Graham or a Chuck Smith or you, uh, uh, you know, Greg Laurie or whoever you want to put into that kind of a a category, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, whoever it might be, and you say, man, that is such a gravy job. I mean, look at that. I guarantee you, in the privacy of their life, that what God does in their motivation for staying faithful to their ministry, that it all comes down to that they are doing it supremely in order to be faithful to what God had called them to do. The easiest thing for anyone to be to do would be to bail out on God's calling. But they stay faithful because God had called them. David stayed, stayed faithful as king through all of this. And he's going to fight through this miserable thing with his son because God called him to be the king. And it was up to God to knock him out of being a king if that's what God wanted him to do. And it wasn't up to his son and Ahithophel and all the other people that were uh, coming up against him in order to, to cast him out. And so they've been waiting for like this moment of vulnerability to launch this whole, uh, whole plan and, and so uh, they, they did. And notice he says in verse 5, My soul uh, wait silently for God alone. He's talking to himself. For my expectation is from him. You notice in verse 1, Truly my soul silently waits for God. So here we've got some self-talk going on. It's okay to talk to yourself. It's okay to counsel yourself. You say, am I schizophrenic or multiple personality or what? No, no, no. You've got an old man and you've got a new man inside of you. And sometimes the new man's got to talk to the old man because the old man wants to do things the old way and the new man knows the better way. So here you've got the new man talking to the old man in, this, in the circumstance. And so if we don't have anybody else to counsel us, we can counsel uh, our, ourselves. And so David is here, and he says, My soul waits silently for God alone. And so he looks at the circumstance and says, Basically, God, if you don't pull me out of this, I'm a dead duck in all of this. But again, he drew closer to God in the circumstances. That's the way you take care of a guy you call king. You allow these people to just come up and overthrow me and I got to run out into the wilderness with my 600 best friends and my wives and the whole deal. And this is a shameful activity. How am I ever going to show my face in Jerusalem again? And my, what's my name's going to be mud in history? That's it. I quit. I'm done. Does he, doesn't go, he doesn't even remotely go there. He, he just looks at it and he says, all right, I am going to draw closer to God here and wait silently for God alone. And there are those times in life, I know you know it, those times in life and circumstances in life where we just have to go through it alone with God. That's all. That's 
a friend of mine in the fellowship a couple of weeks ago. I said, is there anything I can do for you in a difficult circumstance? Is there anything I can do for you? He said, no. Is one of those things that's just between me and God. I get it. I get it. That's just the way that it is. Where you can't explain it to another person. The Bible says there's circumstances in life where we bear one another's burdens. We do need to involve other people to help us in that situation. But the Bible also says, both of them from the book of Galatians, that we're to bear our own burden. There are things that happen in the Christian life that no one else can help us with except for God. And that's why Psalm 62 is known as the only psalm. There is a Hebrew word for only that's used six times in this psalm. And it, it's, it, it, it's translated only or alone in the psalm, but it's the only psalm. And we hit those places where it's just like this is just between God and I. It's got to work out between God and I. I can't talk to anybody else about it. It's just silent between, between us because nobody else can carry the burden of what's going on in my life. I can't explain it to them adequately. They're not a part of the solution. And so this is just between God and me. And, and that's just the way that some circumstances are in life. And so he exhorts himself to silence, to wait silently for God uh, uh, alone. And, and when he talks about waiting silently, one of the hardest things to remain silent in the midst of is when other people are slandering you. Oh, yeah. Or you don't know the half of it. They say this thing and that. But if you... I'm, I'm amazed, even among pastors, how few people get both sides of any situation. I don't even want to be on Facebook. I don't even want to be on I don't even want to read blogs. All this one-sided, 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 and you just ask somebody, did you ever even remotely think as a Christian to talk to the other person involved to understand if these are facts? No, I haven't done that. Then what are you spouting your mouth out for or blogging this thing out under the blog sphere? You don't know anything until you've talked to everybody that's involved in the situation. And so one of the things that's hard is this whole thing is going on. Your reputation is at stake. Everybody's believing the lie. They're running with a lie. And you say, between you and God, you know. Sometimes you're supposed to speak up. But Dave's in a place where this is just between God and I. And between God and I, I'm to keep silent in this and because God's up to something here. And there there have been a few times in in my life where there's, a, and I know you're the same way, that there's just a situation where it's like, man, I could clear this up in an instant with three phone calls. Don't do it. All right, I won't do it. Because what God is doing is bigger than just taking care of my reputation. The Bible, I mean, the old saying is, you take care of your character, God will take care of your reputation, and he will. Sometimes he waits a while, a little longer than I like. He said, Lord, my name is mud. I mean, everybody's believing this, the whole what, you know. God, he's not sweating it up there. He's not like taking nitroglycerin tablets and, and just somebody get me some cold rags, man. I just... Oh. I just feverish over this whole thing. He knows he's going to take care of our reputation. But I have found, and it's not like I'm always on the victim side of this thing. Sometimes I've believed wrong reports. 
And I've run with stuff I shouldn't have, have run with. So I get this thing from both sides. Sometimes God will say, I want you to be silent in this thing, and I'm going to let this thing run for a while so that those who believe a lie, when ultimately I reveal that they believed a lie, they will be so shamed by what they did, they will never put themselves in that circumstance again. It will be a life lesson for them. And I'm going to ask you to stay quiet while I work that process in this situation. Sometimes he does that. And so it requires being silent in order for the Lord to do that. And I think that there's a wonderful strength that's demonstrated in a silent trust in God at those times. And I've watched people where I know the truth about the situation. They're just getting slammed like crazy. The body, even by Christians. These were so-called children of God that were doing this thing to David. And I watch them and they keep their mouths zipped. And again, I'm not, there's, sometimes there's a place to, to get the truth out there. But it's just like when Jesus was before Pilate and Pilate is, you know, asking him questions and these kind of things and all the, or the religious leaders are bringing false accusations against Jesus to Pilate and Pilate says, are these things true? And Jesus is not going to dignify the accusations. He's not going to defend himself against that kind of nonsense. It's below him. Pilate says, you don't speak to me? I have the power to crucify you. Jesus said, you have no power at all, except that it's been given to you by God. Bucker, you're in the middle of a situation. You have no idea what you're in the middle of. And from then on, Pilate wanted out of the situation. But... But even Jesus, here is this accusation that gets made. It's not worthy of a response. He doesn't respond to it. He answered questions that were worthy, worthy of an answer and, and nothing else. And so these, the circumstances that can sometimes occur in, in life, and you watch somebody and looks, and because of the mantle of their life, their character, God's call upon their life, they are not going to go down to that level. And I look at them and I see the price they pay for that. And my respect for them is just enormous. And I know one day their righteousness will be brought forth and made as clear as the sun is in the, in, in the noontime sky, whether in this life or the life to come. But people watch us at times like this. They watch our reaction. And there is something that I can defend my reputation I can fight fire with fire and ruin my testimony for Christ. And so sometimes you see people say, saying anything else here will only mar my Christian testimony. I'm going silent on it. And, I, and you watch them wait silently and you think, you just look at yourself and you say, that guy goes into the spiritual hall of fame as far as I'm concerned. And it's a powerful, powerful uh, witness. Well, where in the world are we uh, in this psalm? For my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. 
And then in verse 8, he begins to give us some exhortations for if we ever find ourselves in that kind of, of a circumstance. And he says, trust in him that is the Lord at all times, you people. You find yourself being slandered unjustly. People that to your face, they appeared as one thing. And then the first chance they got to wipe you out. They joined on the bandwagon to do that. And David comes in and he says, he encourages us just to trust in the Lord at, at all times. Is it that so simplistic? <laughs> it's not simplistic. You say, I need to do something. Having faith is doing something. Trusting in God is doing something. That's an action. That's a decision. That's a choice. That is a powerful choice in a circumstance where I stop and I say, God, in the middle of this, I trust you. Whatever anybody else is doing or saying or not saying, and, and I don't trust anyone else in the circumstance, I trust you to work this together for my good because I love you and I'm the called according to your purposes. And then to just stop and rest in that because God will do exactly that. And then he says, pour out your heart before him. So again, this encouragement to prayer. He's, for God is a refuge for us. This is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, and it's all uh, focused on that word pour. And the word pour there literally means to spill. So he's not only telling us, listen, at a time like this, you need to pray to God. He's telling us we need to pour our heart out to God, to spill uh, our, our heart out to God. Now, my brother, I have a twin brother named Gabe. I was always two inches taller than him growing up until we graduated from high school. He grew six inches that summer. And he threw me around like a beach ball after that. Big guy. But Gabe and I growing up, we were known spillers. I mean, we'd go to dinner, and I don't know how many glasses of milk we spilled. So the thing about when you spill is when you spill a glass of milk, what happens? All the milk goes out of the glass. So David is saying, hey, listen, don't be cute or reserved in your prayer to God. When you're in a circumstance like this, pour your whole heart out to God. Tell him everything you're feeling, everything you see, and, and make it be that complete. There's nobody else in the world that is equipped to process what you're thinking or what you're feeling in a circumstance like that without... Uh, being too much for them or maybe even defiled by it because we're not thinking clearly at the moment. But God can handle that. And so pour your heart out, David said. You begin by trusting in Him, in him then pour your, God, your heart out before Him, and then remember, surely men of low degree are a vapor, men of high degree are a lie. There were both generals and high counselors in, in Israel's government that were turning against David. There were infantry men that were turning against David, men of high degree, men of low degree. But he says... 
If they were weighed in the scales, they are altogether uh, lighter than vapor. In other words, that God says, he looks at them and says that, that they're just a vapor compared to God. You say, well, look at them. Look at how many of them. And look at in the business here. And they've got this position held and that position. They've got all of the, you know, the keys to power and the whole thing. And it looks like I'm just locked in here and trapped. David looks and says, trust me, they're just a vapor. All that matters is whose side is God on in this situation, and then you'll see who's vapor and who isn't vapor. God isn't vapor. Everything else is vapor that comes up against God. And so we trust in that. No matter how awesome they look or fearful they look or fearsome they look, uh, that, that all they are is vapor. He said, don't trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. In other words, he's warning us, when you find yourself in that kind of a situation, do not come down to the level of your enemies. Don't start to live the way that they live and become like them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, begins mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. And so he rested in the almightiness of God, the power of of God and the fact that God's word would win out. He says there, he says, also to you, Lord, belongs mercy for you render to each one according to his work. God, you, your word is going to prevail here and what uh, your word says will be the portion of the wicked or the sinful. That's what they're going to experience. And your portion and your promises for the righteous, that's what the righteous are going to experience in this circumstance, and so he just rests in God to take care of his reputation, but he does so not just like, okay, I resign to this, I'm, you know, dead uncle, you know. There's, there's a confidence here. I rest in you. I take my hands off of it. I am going to keep quiet related to this because I know you're going to win. And in this circumstance, you don't need my help to do that and you don't want my help. And sometimes some circumstances are exactly like that. Well, let's stop there in Psalm uh, 62 and we'll pick things up in Psalm 63, uh, Lord willing, uh, next week. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these psalms. Thank you that when we read them, we just realize somebody knows. Somebody's been through this. Somebody understands. Somebody's got a great God. And Lord, we're thankful for what you allowed David to go through, if for no other reason that he could write these psalms and we could know that in looking at his life, that not a single thing that came against him had the final say, but your word and your will had the final say. And to know that that's the truth about us tonight. Thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you are our God. We thank you that we have you to talk to and to trust in, Lord. We thank you tonight for the long history of your 
faithfulness to us. You have been unfailingly faithful, and we just give you praise for that tonight, Lord, how good you have been to us. And, Lord, I pray and we pray for one another that these psalms and the perspective that they have brought to individual lives and circumstances tonight would not be lost as we leave this room tonight, but that that would continue, Lord, on into our cars and home and into the week and forward in our life with you. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, I don't want to... I can't go home, put my head on the pillow, and go to sleep without letting you know that you don't get into heaven by sitting through one of my sermons. It's